Good evening. Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your host on this journey into the histories and debates surrounding the Bible. If you like Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies, don't forget to like or subscribe and tell others about the show. Just to deal with a little bit of front matter, yeah, it's been a little while since I've uh, posted the next show. Uh, that's not from negligence. That's from everything and its uncle just plain going wrong. Um, we had the holidays. Right after the holidays, we got COVID. Then we got influenza B. Then my dog had to have surgery and had to be inside for 10 days straight because we couldn't get his incision dirty or wet. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do a recording with your dog sitting next to you that likes to bark. Um, yeah, it just wasn't going to happen. And then there was the other problem with doing this episode where every time I tried to do this episode, I wound up with a DE episode. The whole thing of the Nephilim is so complicated. It's so complex that people have been writing books on this for years. Um, I will have to say that in the meantime, while I was doing the research for this episode, I did get that book I wanted to get. And I hate to say this, but it turned out to be a lot of garbage. And that's unfortunate. There's a lot of garbage out there when it comes to the Nephilim. You've got people that are trying to say that every royal house in the world was descended from the Nephilim, and that's how they became royals, and they start they start concocting this, this big elaborate story about the term royale. And, you know, I'm sorry. The Nephilim did set themselves up as gods. We'll talk about that. They did set themselves up as kings instead of their early, their early descendants. But they were stripped of lordship long ago. And the royal families that you have in more modern human history, you know, with the history of Europe, pretty much the Roman Empire forward, these are, there's no evidence whatsoever that the people that's, that, after, especially after the fall of Rome, that set, set up a bunch of petty kingdoms throughout Europe, there's no evidence whatsoever that they were descended from Nephilim. None. None whatsoever. Okay. It's a story, you know, people, some people talk about all oh, the Merovingians, you know, they were descended from the Nephilim. How? How? Well, you know, you can connect this and connect that. Where? How, how can you connect this? When you start dissecting down into some of these stories and some of these books that people write, it becomes clear once you start really researching it that they are saying that some documents say things that they don't really say. Or they're inferring things from a document that it actually doesn't really say. It's being conclusion selective. I have a conclusion and I'm going to look at everything in a way that supports that, that conclusion. That's what they tend to do. And we've got to be very careful of that. Are there some royal lines that may have been descended from a Nephilim? Yeah, I'm sure there were, especially in antiquity when the Nephilim were more than just a distant memory. 
But to say that modern royal houses, not that there's that many modern royal houses today. When I say modern, I'm talking about, you know, fall of Rome and after, more or less modern. When you look at those, there is very little, if any, evidence that's good and hard that you can say, oh, well, you know, this, this was definitely part of the Nephilim. What you see after the fall of Rome is you see the Germanic peoples coming in. And you know, there were Celtic tribes and all that in there that Rome conquered most of those. But you see the Celts up in what's today England and Scotland, the whole thing back then was referred to as, as Britain, the Celts begin to war among themselves and set up petty kingdoms. Not all of these people who wind up being charismatic leaders and adopt this divine right of king's philosophy, that was a way to justify their kingship. It doesn't mean that they were descended from the Nephilim. In fact, most of them were. If you look at the, Celt the, the Celtic petty kingdoms, it was one guy who, who had been you know, sort of charismatic and got people to follow him and sound like he had some good ideas. And so he sort of carves out a place and then he gets more people to come to him. He gets a bigger force. He carves out a little more and they, they start conquering each other. These Celtic kingdoms up in Britain did not come from a Nephilim. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. You see the same thing in, in, with the Germanic tribes, with the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths. There's no evidence that they were ever linked to the Nephilim. None whatsoever. There's just no evidence. But you'll find these books, like the one I was so excited to get, and then when I read it, I was like, oh, this is, this is hokum. It's total garbage. Uh, it's, it's spurious at best. And when you see these things, it's so disappointing. It is so absolutely disappointing because, you, you know, oh, you know, this is, this is a Genesis, you know, book on Genesis 6, and it's going to talk about the Nephilim. It's going to talk about the prehistory and all that. And it does some of that. And then this author, and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw arrows at this author or his book. I'm not going to tell you the title of the book, and I'm not going to tell you the author. Um, but he starts bringing in, I mean, he starts bringing in mythology as if it is scriptural fact. And it's other people's mythologies. Now, I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you that I am a person who, who thinks there is merit to the, uh, the hypothesis, and it's a hypothesis, doesn't even rise to the level of a theory. It's a hypothesis, it's a supposition that Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Hades, Hermes, Dionysus, all of these guys. Uh, Odin, by the way, it's Odin, not Odin. For those who study Norse mythology, you know that. It's Odin, spelled with an F, not a D. But Odin, Thor, Loki, Uller, Forseti, Balder, Njord, you know, all of these, you know, uh, Heimdall, all of these old Germanic gods, all of these pantheons may very well have been based 
on groups of Nephilim that set themselves up in a council. And there's some evidence of a council of, of, of 70 that ruled from Mount Hermon. There's, there's evidence of that in some of the lore from antiquity, and I'll get into that later. But to say that, yeah, these, these pantheon gods were Nephilim, I think is an interesting hypothesis. And it may be a hypothesis that has merit. We may have memories handed down in the form of mythology of these ruling Nephilim that were subjugating humankind post-flood. And I think we certainly have to look at that as a possibility. Do we have any direct evidence for it? No. Let me state that categorically. I'm going to say it one more time. Zeus and the Pantheon. Ra and the Pantheon of, of Egypt. Uh, the Pantheon of the Norse gods led by Odin with Thor and Forsyti and Olur and Baldur and, and the goddess Hel and, and all of that. Could they have been mythologized memories from a ruling class of Nephilim or Rephaim that were ruling over people. Yes, they could have been. That, that is a possibility. But again, I'm categorically state, stating, is there actually concrete evidence for this? No, there isn't. There isn't. It's a wonderful supposition. It's a story that, I'll be honest with you, I kind of like. But it doesn't mean I can say it's fact. It doesn't mean I can say that it's something you can solidly believe in. It is a view. And it's a view I happen to think is interesting and one I happen to like. I think it explains a lot, especially when you start looking at the lore. But again, I'm going to present this view in this little mini-series I'm doing, but take it with a grain of salt. Understand it's just a view. It's not something that anybody can really, based on hard evidence, support. Okay? Tonight, though, what we're going to do, and I'm going, I, you know, I tried so hard to script this. I, oh, I tried so hard. And every time I tried, I just wound up with a DE episode because there's so much. I really need to do a DE episode on this. And it's going to wind up being one of those six or eight hour series DE episodes that I, I know I'm going to eventually do. And I dread doing it because it's such an undertaking. But um, uh, to keep this an SE episode, I decided that what I would do is instead of scripting a long thing because there's too much to go into. And the more I script, the more details I keep putting in. It's just my natural tendency. Instead, I'm going to do this episode a little different. I don't have a script this time. I don't have an outline. I'm just going to see to my pants it. So this is going to be almost like a live episode. This is, <laughs> this is going to be the closest approximation to a live episode uh, that I have done and that I, that I ever really intend to do. But uh, that, this is what I'm actually going to, to do is uh, I'm just going to see to my pants it.
So let's talk about some of the views. Excuse me, you can tell I can, I've still got a little sniffle going. Give me a second. Ah, there we go. Had to <clears throat> clear out my throat and sinuses a little bit. I'm still feeling a little bit of the effects of influenza B. You know, that's the flu that will last a fortnight, you know, the last 14 days. And uh, I'm like 15, 16 days uh, since being, you know, first symptomatic. So I've still got a little bit of touch of it. So you'll, you'll hear, and since I'm going to do this as a sort of an almost live broadcast, I'm not even going to edit it this, this heavily. So you're going to get to hear my sniffs and sniffles and my coughs in this episode. Uh, this is going to be, like I said, I'm going to do this almost like a live. So, as we discussed in the Genesis DE episodes I've done, in the absolute beginning, the all-encompassing one God created from naught, from nothing, the heaven and the earth. And the earth became shapeless and void. All right? We're told that. That's the actual translations. And we, you can go back and listen to those two DE episodes I've done on Genesis. I'm going to be doing another one after I finish this series. The earth becomes void. Now, this is before the creation of humanity. And we're, going to deal, we're going to deal with the creation of humanity a little bit here because we've got to set this stage. As I've mentioned before, it appears, because we've got other evidence in Scripture, we actually have hard, hard evidence for a gap theory. We have hard evidence that God did not create the earth shapeless and void. He says that, that he did not create the earth in vain. He created it to be inhabited. But then we're told, if you actually look at the Hebrew, it, it doesn't say the earth was. It says the earth became. So what we now know is that the devil fell he was already fallen when we get to the Garden of Eden. So he's already fallen during the creation week, as far as we can tell. It appears he fell and was cast from the mountains of, from the mountain of God. It appears he fell between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And a judgment was rendered against him and the earth, and the earth was basically wiped. This is the angelic civilization. This is the rule of the devil. Some people have argued that his name was, is Chael because the actual Hebrew is Chael where it says Lucifer in the Bible. The actual Hebrew is Chael, shining one. Lucifer is used to replace that for reasons I don't understand. I don't know why they just don't put Chael in there. But... Um, some people have said that is his name, Hael. Some people have said, no, that's not his name, it's a title. And I'm going to let other people fight that out. I tend to look at it as a title. It may be his name. But I tend to think that the devil's name, that his crime of pride was so heinous that his name was stricken from the scriptures. And so when God dictates things to Moshe, he doesn't actually use his name. I tend to think that's the case. That's a personal opinion. Don't go and say that's gospel truth. That's a personal opinion. I think Hael, Lucifer, Shining One, Son of the Morning, I think those are titles. 
titles he probably had. You know, sometimes angels have multiple names. There's an actual God-given name, and then there's title. Uh, for example, Michael, Michael, all right? He, his name is Michael. His title is Prince Among Princes, Chief of Angels. You know, he has titles. We're told that in Daniel, that he's the Prince of Princes. All right, so he's numero uno. He is the angel. There is nobody higher angelic-wise than Michael. The only one that's higher than him, next level, is Yeshua, right? The Redeemer. Okay, so you go from Michael to the Redeemer in your hierarchy. That's it. Michael is numero uno among angels. Okay, we're told that. He is the prince among princes, so the prince of princes. So, what we have is the prince of princes at the time, according to the Lord. This is not scriptural. It's never spelled out in scripture. It's according to the Lord. The prince of princes at the time was this Chael, shining one. The covering Keruv. Now, we're told he was a Keruv. He was one of the Keruvim. We don't, we're not really clear what Michael is. I'm going to clear this up, though. This archangel stuff. There are two views on it. Actually, there's multiple views of where archangels fall in the hierarchy. There's actually some views out of uh, out of Catholicism where you have the lowest rank of angel is, is angel, and then the next lowest rank is archangel, and then there's you know thrones and principalities and all this stuff above archangel. Yet we're told Michael is the archangel, the archangel. They say archangel. It's actually archangel. But he's the prince of princes. So another view of the hierarchy is that archangels or archangels are the highest rank above everything else. Some view them as, as the highest rank of true angel, of what they call man-facing angels, those angels that, were, that, that, that faced man and watched over man, whereas the throne-facing angels are the cherubim and the seraphim. And they're higher even than archangels. So you, if you go through and you look up angels, you will find all kinds of different hierarchies out there. And I'm going to tell you, all of them are people's ideas and what they wanted to make them to be. The Bible isn't very clear. The only thing the Bible is clear on is that of all angels, all angels, so if Keravim and Seravim are angels, which apparently they are, Michael's above them too because he is the prince of princes, we're told in Daniel. So he's the highest of them all. He's above the cherubim. He's above the seraphim. Now, does that mean that Michael is something other, that archangel is, is a, a different species, a different race, whatever you want to call it, of angel? Because we're told there's, a, there's some physical differences, right? The cherubim are described as having four wings. The seraphim are described as having six wings. So there appears to be some differences. We don't fully understand those, but there appear to be some differences. Does that mean that Michael is, or that the archangels are something other than the others? In other words, they're a different class. Maybe, but maybe not. Go back and look at, at, go back and listen to that episode when I talked about the, the gap theory and I talked about the devil. We're told the devil was a Keruv, and yet he was the number one of all angels. 
He was above Michael. He was numero uno. He was the prince of princes. And Michael replaces him when he when this covering Keruv falls. So it may not depend on what, and I'm going to use the term race for lack of a better term. I mean, what else are you going to call it? I, you know, you got an angel here. You got an archangel here. You got a throne. You got a principality. You got a power. You've got a Keruvim. You've got the Seravim. And apparently, at least Keravim and Seravim look different than other angels and look sort of different from each other. So, you know, I'm going to use the term race just because I don't know what else to call it. Lack of a better term, right? So, it doesn't, I don't think it matters what race of angel you are. I don't think it matters. You have as much power as God decides you have. And you are as mighty as God decides you are. And so, whatever Michael is, I don't think it matters. I don't know if he's a seraphim. I don't know if he's a cherubim. I don't know if he's some separate class. I don't know if he's the lowest rank of, of an angel when he started out and then got promoted. I don't know. Don't know. Don't really, be honest with you, don't really care. I don't think it matters. Okay? You can argue all these things, but I don't really think it matters. What matters is, is that the numero uno angel was the one that will become the devil. And he falls between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. He was a karuv. We are told he was a karuv. And he falls. And one-third of the angels of heaven joined him in his rebellion. His rebellion was not to be higher than God. Understand that. His term of pride, remember his, his, the things he stated was, I will be like the Most High. In other words, he wanted to be equal to God. Still blasphemous. But he did not, he was not so stupid as to think he could be greater than God. He wanted to be equal to God. He wanted to be worshipped. And so iniquity was found in him, and he was cast from the from the mountains of fire, from the mountains of God, the place the places of light. And the angels that, that followed him went with him. Now, what's all this got to do with an Nephilim? Patience. Patience, young grasshopper. I'm getting there. This is the first fall of angels. God then recreates the world. And this is where it picks up, starting in Genesis 1-2, and we go through the creation week. That's the second creation. There's a creation... There's a first fall of angels. There's a second creation. There will be a third creation. Understand this. God has this, you know, it's kind of interesting. And God doesn't have to do this. I think he chooses to do this to kind of, you know, help our feeble little brains. God works in patterns. Numbers repeat in the Bible. 3, 7, 12, 24, um, 70. All right. Those repeat. These repeat again and again and again and again. And some other multiples of those. These numbers repeat a lot. God talks about, for example, a lot of people don't realize this. <clears throat> this is going to go into a little bit of woo for you, okay? But I'm a little bit of, I'm a mystic, okay? I'm a mystic. There's three manifestations of God in, in the physical form on earth. The first manifestation 
of the presence of God in a physical dwelling place is the Ark of the Covenant. We're told that the Spirit of God rested there. Now, He was everywhere, but there was a concentration of the Spirit of God there. Okay? That wasn't His soul dwelling. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that the, the Ark of the Covenant was a physical manifestation that people could see, and they could talk to that Ark, and the Ark, with the power of God, a voice would come from it, and it would converse with people, particularly Moshe. But this is the first manifestation of God in a physical way, in a structure made by man, in a, stru in a structure made by man, that's the ark, resting in a structure made by man, which was the tabernacle and later the temple. The next manifestation of God in a physical way, all right, of the divine in a physical way, is Yeshua in a body made not by man, but from man. Right, now, this is just a view. Understand, this is just a view. This is the three, the three messianic view. Okay? The first appearance of a, in a messianic way of delivering the message, of, of leading the people, showing them the way, is, is through Moshe as the herald, and you've got this physical manifestation in a way of God in the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. Then you get John the Baptist is the mortal herald and a physical manifestation of the divine made from man in Yeshua. The third Messiah, the third messianic coming, or the third presence of God in the physical way on earth, is when Yeshua returns, not in a body made from man, but in a oikaterian, in a heavenly body, which of course he gets, after his crucifixion, right? That body's transfigured. He's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The mortal heralds will be there. That's the two witnesses. And this time, I believe it's going to be Moshe and Elijah, and Elijah returned in some way. Maybe it's just in spirit, but it could be they actually come back. Um, and we talked about that in an earlier episode. So then you get the mortal herald and the return of the Messiah. So there's this pattern that, that some people point out. Again, this is just a view. You don't have to believe this. There are some days I'm not sure I believe this. Some days I do kind of believe it. it I, 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 I sort of waffle a bit on this, but it's a view. That there's three manifestations of God on earth. We talk about a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, right? We, The three, the three, the three, the three. Okay? What you're going to find is, is there are going to be three creations. There's a first creation, which is ruined between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Second creation, that's what we're in now. We're in the second creation. And then we're told that God's going to, right? He's going to come back and all this, and, and, and the world and everything is going to be redone. It's a third creation and a kingdom of God on the earth. And then the earth will pass away and everything will go to heaven. Okay? So some people that, that look at this number view, and this is the number view of, of, of the Bible, say you know, that these events happen in threes. Three manifestations of, of, of God in a physical way on, on earth. There's three creations that will happen. You know, and they'll point out these numbers. And so just understand that. It's a view. I'm not telling you it's the truth, but it's a view. And it's an interesting view. It's one that bears at least looking into whether you accept it or not. 
it's one that's interesting and, and bears looking into. So we've got this second creation, though. We know we've got a second creation because the Bible tells us that. Earth became void and waste. Now he's, he's redoing it. We then get into day six, and I previewed this in a few episodes, and I'm going to go ahead and deal a little bit with this now. And I, when I get to that passage uh, in my DE episodes, I'll go in more depth. There are three major views and a few other views about the creation of man. If you read in the creation of man in Genesis 1, God creates, uh, God creates Adam, man. Now remember, Adam means man. It's not, Adam's never named. This is where it confuses people. And this is where you get one of the views. One of the views is that God created Adam, meaning the first man, Adam, but then it says, male and female, he created them. Then we pick up a creation of, of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. One view, which is a predominant view in most Christian churches today, is that this is what I call the fly-by view. Genesis 1 flies by the creation of Adam and Eve, and, and it gives the impression of a simultaneous creation, but it's really not. He's just doing a fly-by, and then he comes back and tells us in detail in Genesis 2. That's one point of view. Another point of view, which is actually was, was held by many early Christians, and it's a point of view that was held by many Jews, is that no, it's a simultaneous creation that's being talked about in Genesis 1. And from that comes two major views and a couple of little minor views. I'm not going to get into minor views too much, although I will mention, I've talked about the Hasidic uh, view where Adam was created as a conjoined hermaphrodite, having both male and female sexual organs and everything else. And that in Genesis 2, when he takes the rib from Adam, what he's really doing is he's separating the male from the female because Adam was a hermaphrodite when he was first conceived. And so uh, when he's created in Genesis chapter 1, he's a hermaphrodite, so he's male and female. He is plural, has two minds, maybe even has two heads. And he has male and female body parts, and then God splits them apart into two separate beings in Genesis 2. That is, a, that is a view that has been promoted by some of the Hasidic rabbis. I think it's totally wrong. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't agree with that view, but that is a view. And if you go on YouTube and you, you know, watch these videos from some of these rabbis about Adam and Eve, you will see that view being promoted, especially by some of the Hasidic rabbis. That's a minor view, though, and it's not one that, I'll be honest, I, I think has a lot of support. The other view is that there's a simultaneous creation of man and woman, and that the man is Adam. This is the next view. The woman is his first wife, Lilith. And this is still widely regarded as the fact and the truth in many circles, particularly in the Middle East. There are a lot of Jewish communities and there are some Christian communities that still talk about Adam's first wife, Lilith. It was so popular that in a, a, a Jewish text called the Alphabet of Ben Sira, this story is, is fleshed out. So that is a very real tradition that Adam had a first wife because they were created together from the dust of the earth. She viewed herself as equal. Adam wanted to be on top during sex, and she refused to lie beneath him. 
And he said, lie beneath me, woman. She refuses. And Adam goes and complains to God. And God t tells her, be subservient to your husband. And she refuses, pronounces the unpronounceable name of God. And it gives her such power that she flies out of Eden. And she ultimately winds up refusing to come back when angels are sent after her. And she winds up being a demon who has to suffer the death of a hundred of her children every day for her disobedience. That's the legend. Some communities view this as fact. Just understand that. It's a view. It is a view. The other view, which was actually in many ways more widespread, and the one that makes a lot of sense scientifically, and is a view that I'm going to be honest with y'all, and y'all may take issue with me for this, but it's a view that I tend to agree with, is that there are day six people and day eight people. And that on day six, God created humanity in wondrous variety. And on day eight, specifically, he creates the Garden of Eden. And if you read the chronology in the Bible, it goes through this chronology and it talks about God resting and then it talks about the creation of Eden and, and, and Adam. So there is a suggestion in the text. It can be interpreted this way. If you read it a certain way, there is a suggestion in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam and Eve may have been created after God rested. There's a suggestion there. You can read it that way. And so the Jewish people descended specifically from Adam and Eve as a special creation. That's another view. The merit of this view is that it explains so much with the remains of different races and or species of humans. Now, as a biologist myself, I'm going to tell you right now, genetics is too young of a science. Anybody that tells you you can divide things into species based off of mitochondrial DNA does not understand genetics. And I, I can't tell you how many geneticists that are supposed to be geneticists will, will tell you, oh, well, we, can, we can split these things into different species because of the mitochondrial DNA. No, you can't. Because it's the nuclear DNA that determines whether or not the sperm and the egg are compatible. Okay? Mitochondrial DNA, because it has a fairly consistent mutation rate, can give you an idea of how long two populations have been separated. But it doesn't tell you anything about how compatible the nuclear DNA is. It doesn't. So this notion that you can tell if something is two different species by looking at mitochondrial DNA is a fallacy and a falsehood that has actually been perpetrated by geneticists so they can get publications. It's not fact. Okay? Now, why do I say that? We do not know if Homo naledi, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo ergaster, Homo erectus, um, Homo neanderthalensis, and Homo sapiens were all species. We really don't know that. There's something called the natural species concept where nature is what decides what a species is, not us. 
And in that, if two animals are able to, to interbreed and produce fertile offspring, then they are naturally the same species. It's different than the biological species concept. Biological species concept says if two things are able to breed and produce fertile offspring and they look similar, that they're the same species. Well, who decides what looks similar? The natural species concept removes humanity's opinion from it a little bit more and says if they're able to interbreed and produce fertile offspring on a consistent basis, in other words, it's not a fluke. You can actually take a mule and, I mean, you, excuse me, you can take a donkey and a horse and breed them and breed them and breed, and you can get two, two or three hundred of each pair uh, of each one and breed them together and eventually one of the mules will be fertile. One of them. Out of so many thousand offspring, one will be fertile. It just happens that way. They have had fertile mules. They do actually appear exceedingly rare. Mules, as a rule, are sterile. But they have had fertile mules. One out of every, I don't even know what the odds are, one out of every so many thousand will be fertile. So the natural species concept says if they can interbreed and produce fertile offspring consistently, they're the same species. Okay? We know for stone-cold fact there is no Homo neanderthalensis. It's a myth. It's not a species. We know for stone-cold fact that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens sapiens, the subspecies sapiens to which we're supposed to belong, interbred with each other. We know that for a stone cold fact. The genes are there. We can look at the nuclear DNA and we can see that. It's there. Neanderthal traits are in some modern humans, particularly Northern Europeans. We were able to interbreed and produce consistently fertile offspring with Neanderthals. They're a race. At weakest, they're a race. At strongest, they're a subspecies. Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis. Now, what's that got to do with days of Noah? We're getting there because we're going to talk about the views, okay? I got to set this stuff up because we got to talk about the views of who the Bene Halohim were. So be patient. We'll get there. So we don't know if Homo heidelbergensis, which is supposed to be the ancestor of both Homo sapiens and Homo, Homo sapiens neanderthalensis, because we can put that bit that to bed, that, that was not a, Neanderthals were not a species. We can put that to bed. They were a subspecies at best. We don't know if Homo, if Homo heidelbergensis was a species or if it was Homo sapiens heidelbergensis. We don't know. Go further back than that. Erectus, well, Erectus and Ergaster, when it's, when it's in Africa, they call it Ergaster. When it migrates out of Africa and gets into Asia, they call it Erectus. Well, we don't know if they were different species or not. We don't know if Homo sapiens sapiens that came out and migrated out of Africa later and went to Asia were able to interbreed with Homo sapiens erectus or not, because it could have been Homo sapiens erectus and Homo sapiens sapiens. We don't know. But what we do know is they were present. We have these different kinds of people, these different races, subspecies, some of them may have even been species, of people. We have these. 
We've got Rudolph Ensis. We've got, you know, Habilis. We've got, um, like I said, Naledi. We've got, uh, uh, I mean, there, there's so many of them. It's hard to even keep up with them all. The family tree is more of a very highly branched family bush. And all of these may have been created on day six. When God created man, male and female, he created them. There's definitely a plural. Some people are trying to be literal and say, well, the them is, is just those two. Maybe not. That may not be what God is saying. Remember, God did not, this is not how to create a universe by God. This is written to the Jews in, within the context of their language and their culture with what they need to know to have a relationship with God. It wasn't how I created the world by God. It's not God's autobiography on it and detailed description on how he created the universe. That's not what it is. It's not even really his autobiography. It's more how to have a relationship with me. That's what this is about. It's a, it's a guide. So it is entirely possible that in day six, God created humanity, multiple species, multiple subspecies, multiple races. And then Adam and Eve are a specific creation. That's one of the views. And actually that view that God created the Gentiles and then he created the Jews, Adam and Eve as a special creation, is not a new idea. That's actually an ancient idea. We can, with a fossil record, sort of fill in blanks now and expand that idea a little bit. But it's an ancient idea. So the views on the creation then are the flyby view. Then there is the view that God created day six people and day eight people. Then there's the view that God created Adam and Lilith. And then Lilith is a disobedient wife. Adam complains and God makes Eve from Adam so Adam can legitimately rule over her. That's another view. And then there's the strange and bizarre views of the Hasidic, the hermaphrodites, and, and all this kind of stuff. So these are your views of creation. Now let's get into what happened in the days of Noah. First of all, let's get let's step back to Cain and one support for the day six, day eight people argument is this. We are told that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Abel gets murdered by Cain. God goes to Cain and says, Cain, where is your brother? We get the famous line, I don't know. How am I supposed to know? Am I my brother's keeper? Right, we get the famous, am I my brother's keeper? God tells him, you know, I know you've murdered him. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain is, is, is afraid of what's going to happen. God's banishing him from the land. He's going eventually to the, what's called the land of Nod. Uh, eventually, that's in the future, but he's ultimately going to go into, in, into the land of Nod. But he's going to be a wanderer. He's never going to really put down roots. And even though he found cities, he's never going to reside there. He's going to put down roots and be a wanderer. That's the tradition. And what happens is, is, is Cain is so afraid of being banished, he says, if anyone finds me, surely they will kill me. 
And God says, oh, jeez, Cain, don't be a drama king. Who's going to find you? There's you, your dead brother, and your mom and dad. Who are you worried about? That's what God says, right? No. Not even remotely. That's not what God says at all. That's not what He says at all. He confirms Cain's fear that there's other people. Wait a minute, what? What other people? What are you talking about? Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They didn't have any kids there. We're told that. They come out of the Garden of Eden and they have Cain and Abel. That's their first youngins. Who is Cain afraid of? And even if they had more unmentioned children, they would have still been living in that area as a family group. Cain's going out in the wilderness away from his family group. Who is he worried about? Who in the world is he worried about? And so many people point out that there, you know, the scripture says if a thing be if a thing be true, if the scripture says if a thing be true, you will see at least two witnesses. Well, we got two witnesses. We got Cain and we got God. And actually you only need one witness if it's God. But God confirms Cain's fear that there's other people. Furthermore, we get a third witness in his wife. Now, the Jubilean tradition, the Jubilean tradition tries to, it boxes itself in a corner because it tries to answer that question. And it being a fundamentalist book, the Jubilean tradition tries to go with the view that Genesis 1 is a flyby. Genesis 2 is a detailed account of the, con of the construction of Adam. So, Boxing itself in that corner when it comes to who Cain married, now the author of Jubilees, who's posing as Moshe, by the way. It's supposed to be from Moshe. It's not. But the author of Jubilees is then boxed in the corner. He's got to figure out a way to get a wife for Cain that didn't come from day six people because he's rejecting the notion of day six people. And so he creates a one who is supposed to be a daughter of Adam and Eve and Cain's sister. So A1, who knows Cain's murdered her older brother, goes out, finds, and shacks up with Cain. That's the Jubilean story. Okay? The other tradition is that Cain finds a wife in these day six people. Okay? So that's going to kind of get us up to, up to snuff here with some of the backstory because we've got to understand this stuff because you've got to understand some of the views when we get to the book of Enoch, when we get to, to this Enochic tradition, when we get to Genesis 6, there are views that come out of this that were trying to, and I talked about these before, you know, Julius Africanus creates the Sethite contrivance as a more comfortable ground because Celsus and Julian the Apostate were criticizing the church for believing that angels had sex with human beings and produced giants, okay? So they come up with a Sethite contrivance 
which is not scriptural at all because the Sethites weren't so godly. You know, there's these godly people, you know, and, while, and they're mixing with ungodly people. It doesn't produce monsters. And plus, the Sethites were all wiped out in the flood. So they couldn't have been that godly. So it has holes, major, major, major holes. It's like, a, in fact, I say it's not, it's not holes like tightly woven cloth. It's holes like a colander. You know, it's got, it's, it's got some big holes. But these are some of the views. And you've got to understand this day six people, day eight people to understand some of the other views. So what does all this stuff about the day six people have to do with the Nephilim? Well, that's one of the views. And I'm going to deal with this view first. I wanted to set this up for you because you actually would be surprised at how many people adhere to this view? There is a view that the Bnei Chalohim were Neanderthals. I know that shocks some people. But there is a view out there, and it's actually gains quite a bit of ground, that either Homo heidelbergensis or perhaps Homo sapiens heidelbergensis is probably more correct. We don't know. But, but Homo sapiens neanderthalensis, which that has been put to bed, we know they're just a subspecies at best because they're, they're able to reproduce with human beings. There is a view because Neanderthals were physically stronger than modern humans. So there is a view that they may not have, not have been giant in stature, but giant in strength. And so one of the views is that either the Nephilim were Denisovans or Neanderthals, or that these were the sons of God that came into the Ben-Athadam, daughters of Adam. So there is a view out there that before the flood, that either the Nephilim were seen as these other some of these other physically stronger groups of people, or that they were the sons of God, and when they produced these crossbreeds, these crossbreeds would have been gifted with a lot of the physical prowess of the Neanderthal, for example, or Denisovan, but maybe the physical height more like Homo sapiens sapiens. The other view, the other view that kind of wraps into this is if you take a lion and a tiger and you cross them, the hybrid, which is either called a Tigon or a Liger, tends to suffer from a form of giantism. The size regulation genes malfunction. And so hybrids often between tigers and lions are larger even than the largest tigers, which are Siberian tigers. The largest cat in the world naturally is the Siberian tiger. It's much larger even than the African lion. And a lot of people don't realize that, that African lions are not the largest cat Siberian, tar uh, Siberian, Siberian tigers are. In fact, Bengal tigers are about as large as an as a African lion. When you cross a lion and a tiger, though, often the size regulation gene gets dysregulated and they grow to fantastic proportions and become absolutely huge, much larger even than a Siberian tiger. And so one thing that may have happened in, in this view is that initially when the Neanderthal, which was sh shorter than a modern human, but physically much more robust and stronger, 
and a modern human crossed, those offspring may have had size dysregulation and been of giant stature and physical strength. That is one view. So understand that one view that is, and this is a very modern view. This is not something that comes out of antiquity. This is not something that comes out of antiquity at all. Okay? This is a very modern view, but it's one that's gained a lot of ground. I think it's an incorrect view. I don't think it's correct. But you will see that more and more and more people embrace this view than they did previously, and it's continuing to be embraced. I've heard this a lot. Well, well, these, these sons of God, weren't they like Neanderthals or something? You'd be surprised how much I've heard that. Is it plausible? Just based on what what we know that, yeah, humans did interbreed with Neanderthals and stuff, and, and apparently even interbred with Denisovans. Yeah. It, it, it could be plausible. But I think the Scripture makes it plain that that wasn't what happened. If you're just looking at the physicality of it, is it plausible? Yes. But if you look at what the Scripture says, I think the Scripture makes it plain that that's not what was happening. Because it tells us, the tradition tells us that these Bene Elohim were the watchers. We are told, we are, watchers are mentioned later in the Bible, but in the Enochic traditions and the extra-canonical traditions, it tells us that these were watchers, that these were watcher angels, that they were angels. It's very clear that Jude and Peter and all believe that because they talk about the angels that sinned. They are very clearly saying that these Benechalohim, these sons of God, were angels. But I went through all that front matter about the day six people because, one, it's a view I happen to hold. I think that there were day six and day eight people. But I don't personally hold the view, because I think the Scripture sort of rejects it, that the, that the Nephilim were a product or either were or were a product of other groups of people. But that view has gained quite a bit of ground in the in the past few decades that perhaps the Nephilim were a crossbreed between either modern humans and Denisovans or modern humans and, and Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. Uh, so you'll find that. So there's one of the views. That's why I set all that up. So there you go. You'll find people that believe that. I'm going to set that view aside now. I did all that front matter on it and boom, I dropped that view in your lap. But I don't think there's anything more to be said about it because I think the Scripture makes it clear that's not the case, that these are angels. So now we're going to proceed on with these angelic views. All right. So let's get on and let's start looking at this. So in the book of Enoch and in Genesis 6, we are told that the world is growing wicked. And one of the things that one of the things that happens that causes the world to become wicked is we get a second fall of the angels. 
Wait a minute, what? There's a second fall. Now remember me talking about the patterns of threes? Okay? There's going to be three creations. There were three physical manifestations of God to his people uh, on, uh, on the earth. And this is a view. This is just a view, understand. Another thing here is that there would be three falls of angels. Okay? And we're going to talk about two different views of the three falls. Because there are at least two different views. And it's kind of interesting. The first fall of the angels was the fall of the covering Karuv. The next fall of the angels, we're told that in the days before the flood, God sent angels to watch over mankind. Okay? And what's important to understand about this is these angels are going to play a very pivotal role because these angels are going to fall. They're going to become tempted by humanity. Okay? So, these angels, let's talk about these angels and let's set this stage. We first hear about the watchers actually in Enoch chapter 1. It talks about, in the first book of Enoch chapter 1, it talks about the, uh, the watchers, that the watchers, you know, that, that when the judgment of God comes, even the watchers will be terrified. We don't get a lot of detail in the first book of Enoch about the watchers. Now, we get a little more um, get a little more interesting detail in the second and third books of Enoch, which, you know, the first book of Enoch we know is uh, is something that was regarded as canonical by the Dead Sea Scroll community. What we don't know is how much of the second and third. Uh, Books of Enoch are uh, are really canonical. They're they're, they're spurious. I, I'm going to be honest. They're spurious. They're they're definitely interesting traditions, and they expound on some of the other traditions. But how seriously we should take them is definitely something that's subject to debate. We know we should take the Book of Enoch seriously, not as canon, but as certainly. What was viewed as canon by some people, there was probably a canonical version of the book of Enoch. Again, Jude quotes from it. Uh, it's referenced uh, many places in both the, the uh, First and Second Testaments. It was definitely a canonical book at one time. The versions we have today are probably not canonical. Uh, they're just, they're adulterated. But we first hear about the Watchers talking about the Watchers early on in the first book of Enoch. The Jubilean tradition fleshes it out a little bit. And what it talks about in Jubilees chapter 4, and again, Jubilees is a fundamentalist book. It's definitely not something that should be canonized, but it's, an, it's, an in, it's interesting because it shows where it agrees and expounds on the Enochic tradition is interesting. We don't know how, how accurate it is, but it's certainly an interesting window into what people believed, okay? It's part of the lore. Whether it's scripture or not, highly debatable, but it's definitely lore, okay? 
So if you look in chapter 4, we're going to start with uh, verse 15 of Jubilees. And in the second week of the tenth Jubilee, Mahalalel took unto him to wife Dina, the daughter of Barakiel, the daughter of his father's brother. And she bare to him a son in the third week of the sixth year, and he was called Jared. Now Jared, if you remember from me talking about uh, Bible codes, that Jared means to come down or to descend. And it says, his, and it, he, he called his name Jared. For in his days, the angels of the Lord descended on the earth, those who are named the watchers, that they should instruct the children of men and that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. Okay? Now, what we learn from this tradition is that the watchers, and this is in, in, uh, in later books too, uh, other, other versions of the book of Enoch talk about this a little more in depth. We have fragments of Enoch that, that gives us um, actually more information than the, um, than the Gize book, which is the, the book that's Ethiopian tradition of Enoch. We have fragments in Greek and stuff like that that actually are, expound, are, are expanded on. And so we don't know if the Greek fragments are from a more canonical version of Enoch or a later version of Enoch. We, we don't really know. And I'll talk about uh, one of the Greek versions of the book of Enoch that we have fragments of that was quoted by Syncellus, and it gives us some interesting insights into the giants. But what we see is that the watchers, and watchers, by the way, are talked about in Daniel, in the canon. Daniel talks about uh, the watchers, I think, I think three, three or four times in Daniel, he mentions the watchers, or at least a watcher. So they're a class of angel that was sent to judge and to guide humankind. And they first came down in the days of Jared. We don't know how many there are. There are some people who speculate that because in the, in the first book of Enoch, it, it reads like this. It mentions watchers, and then it talks about uh, 10,000 saints. Some people say that as saints, but this is what book of Enoch says. And, uh, see, and I began my story, this is the first chapter, starting with verse 3. I began my story concerning the elect. I said, the Holy Great One will come out from His dwelling, and the eternal God will tread on the earth, uh, even on Mount Sinai, and appear in the strength of his might from heaven. And all shall be afraid. The watchers shall shake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them all the way to the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be laid low, and shall melt like wax in the flame. And the earth shall be completely torn apart, and all that is on the earth shall be destroyed, and there shall be a judgment on all. But with the righteous he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy be upon them and they shall all belong to God and they shall prosper and they shall be blessed and the light of God shall shine on them. And behold, he comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, in that passage, it talks about God comes with 10,000 holy ones. Some people interpret that as end-time saints. Some people say, no, he's talking about the judgment that's about to come, the judgment of the flood. 
and that the 10,000 holy ones are 10,000 watchers that will come and bind help and help Michael and, and the others bind the, uh, the watchers that have rebelled and will help destroy everything in the flood, that, that these 10,000 watcher angels. So there's a couple of views there. And don't know which one's right. Don't know. Don't know if this is an end time prophecy or an end of their time prophecy because there's two end times. Remember, there's two end times from the point of view of Enoch. There's the end time of his age, which is going to culminate in the days of Noah after Enoch's already taken out. Then there's the end time at the end of all times. So we're talking about two different end times here. And remember, there's three end times if you're playing that numbers game. The first end time is the end time of the angelic occupation of the earth as an angelic civilization between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. That's the first end time where God passes a judgment on the earth. There's a second end time which is coming up soon in the days of Noah because we're talking about en days of Enoch right now. We're talking about Enoch and, and what's going on here when the watchers come down in the days of Jared. We're talking about what Enoch talked about. So this time period, there's the next end time, the next judgment. Then there's going to be another one. Okay? So we get three judgments, three end times. See that pattern of three, right? You start getting into this stuff and sort of this more mystic view of the scriptures and a lot of the stuff that you just breeze past, you can't really breeze past anymore because they, they, the meaning looks way too profound. Okay, so anyway, we've got these watcher angels and these watcher angels, according to the Lord, are sent down to be judges on the earth. Okay, they're, they're to judge mankind, they're to guide mankind. Now, Jasher, this, again, it's, that's, a, that's a spurious book, but Jasher mentions them. And in Jasher... We talk about things that, that, that started happening um, in these, right before the end times. Now, the end times I'm talking about at this point is the end times uh, of the Enochic vision, right? And the Enochic, and, and the times of Noah. I'm talking about this, this second end times. So I'm going to be talking about the end times a lot in this episode, and I want y'all to understand which end times I'm talking about. All right? We've already had the first end times, which is the end of the angelic civilization on the earth, because we're told that in the scripture, right? That, that the devil had all these temples and all this, and they were laid ruined, laid waste, and all this. Well, when did that happen? Well, that happened in the first fall, in the first end time, with the judgment on the earth. This is the second end times that we're talking about. The third end times are to come. That's the end times we typically think about. But for the purposes of this episode, while I'm talking about end times, I'm talking about the flood of Noah. This is the end times of this fall of, of, of humanity and the angels. This, this end times of this, this rampant iniquity. Okay? And what we find out is when we look at Jasher, one of the things that was going on is, and this is from Jasher chapter 2, For in those days the sons of men began to trespass against God, 
and to go contrary to the commandments which he had given Adam, to be prolific and reproduce in the earth. Remember, the first command given to man, really, is be, be fruitful and multiply, right? That's on day six. The day six people get that commandment first, okay? So when this is talking about Adam, it may be talking about Adam. It may be talking about Adam, man. It may mean both. We don't know, okay? I tend to interpret it as both. Then it says, and some of the sons of men, sons of Adam, right? Because Adam means man caused their wives to drink a mixture that would render them unable to conceive in order that they might retain their figures and their beautiful appearance might not fade. And when the sons of men caused some of their wives to drink, Zillah drank with them, and the childbearing women appeared abominable in the sight of their husbands, and they treated them as widows. Their husbands lived with those unable to conceive, and to those women they were attached. So what we find out is one of the iniquities that's going on is abortion. Okay? Now let me explain why this is abortion. Because what they're doing is they're drinking a mixture. It's not going to prevent, this mixture is not going to prevent a man having sex with his wife from ejaculating the sperm in, you know, into her vagina up near the cervix, the the uh, the sperm swim up through the cervix into the into the actual womb. All right, it goes through that uterus, it goes up into the fallopian tubes where it encounters the eggs. You get multiple sperm releasing their digestive enzymes from their from the cap. And it sort of eats its way. A lot of people don't realize this. It's not one sperm that's all that's needed to fertilize the egg. That's actually not true. One sperm fertilizes the egg, but that sperm can't get to the egg because there's a coating over the egg. It actually takes, I think estimates range about 10,000 sperm to actually, they, they, have, they dump their digestive enzymes onto that coat that coats the egg, and they drill down to the, to the cell membrane of the egg, and then that final sperm that's able to actually touch that membrane is grabbed on by the receptors and pulled into the egg, and then the receptors on the surface of the egg change, so no more sperm are allowed to attach and, and get drawn in. That sperm that's drawn in then fertilizes the egg. So a lot of people are under the misconception that one sperm is all that's needed to fertilize the egg. No. One sperm fertilizes the egg, but actually you need more sperm to burrow through that outer coating around the egg to actually get there. Just a biological aside for people uh, to clear up a myth. One sperm, and one sperm only fertilizes the egg, but you have to have more than one sperm to actually get through that coating so that one sperm can fertilize the egg. A little trivia, a little medical trivia there. But this concoction is not going to prevent that process. It's not going to prevent that process. They have these herbal concoctions. And these herbal concoctions don't prevent fertilization. What they do is, is it's possible it could have prevented ovulation, but I doubt that because that probably would have caused problems, cystic ovary disease and stuff like that. More likely, it was an aborticide. And in fact, a lot of the Jewish traditions that surround this 
they kind of, if you kind of get a rabbi off to the side, they'll kind of say, yeah, they, they, this was abortion drugs, kind of like what the Romans used to use. See, the Romans, there was a plant that grew around Rome that was so efficient at causing abortions that the plant went extinct. It's talked about in the Roman records. We can't find the plant today. It was collected so much that it actually went extinct in the wild. They actually drove it to extinction uh, it was so widely used for these abortions. And this is probably a similar plant. And so one of the things that we're finding out in the lore, again, this is the lore, not the scripture. It's the lore. Let's keep them separate. But understand that this is the overarching tradition. So one of the things that we're finding out is that what women were doing is so they would, they would stay hot mamas and not get, and let's be honest, you know, having a baby starts putting weight on you. It, it, you know, you have to have extremely good genetics or, or, a, or a very good personal trainer to keep from gaining weight after you've had a few babies. And I think any woman will pretty much agree that after you have babies, it's really hard to keep the weight off. And what was happening is, is these women that were birthing babies, it wreaks havoc on your body. You start gaining weight. You don't look as good. Uh, the breasts, you know, will often after lactation and, and after that lactation's over, be, will sometimes begin to sag. And so they did not look as pleasing to their men. So their men started giving them these herbal treatments. And we don't know if the men were actually giving it to him or the women were actually concocting them, but the men were causing them to drink it because of their attitudes. That's a little unclear. If you actually look at what was taught by the fallen angels, the cutting of roots and things like that, it, it appears that the women were doing this to themselves in order to please their men, that their men were causing them to want to do it, but the women were actually concocting this stuff and taking it. It wasn't the men tying the women down and shoving this down their throat, okay? But what they were doing is, is this taking this plant which is very likely some, either the same or something very similar to, to the plant that was located, that we have records for, all over Rome. Uh, and it was an aborticide. And they would, they would have sex with their men. They would, they would maybe miss a period, and they would drink this concoction, and they would abort the fetus very, very early so it didn't affect their body. And so one of the things that that is happening at this time, and one of the reasons that people don't understand why abortion is such a great sin, is according to the lore, and this is this lore is older than Roe versus Wade. This is not something that's been published to to be propaganda against Roe versus Wade and all that stuff. This this happened. This, you know, Book of Jubilees was around in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, the Book of Jasher was around not long after that. And so what we find out from the tradition is that one of the iniquities was baby murder. They were murdering babies in the womb, taking aborticides, okay? <clears throat> that was one of the iniquities going on. So the watchers are sent down because there's iniquity going on, and they're supposed to watch over mankind. And what they're going to do is they're going to judge people, and they're going to guide them on the straight and narrow. That's their job. Okay? Now, Enoch, chapter 6. 
And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born to them beautiful and fair daughters. And the angels, the sons of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and have children with them. And Samyaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear you will not agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of this great sin. Samyaza already knows that this is a great sin. Make no mistake about this. This was not unwitting. Now, there's a tradition that comes out of this about how did he know this was a great sin, and I'll get to that in just a minute. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual curses so that we will not abandon this plan, but do this thing. And they all swore together and bound themselves by mutual oaths or curses. And they were, all, they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared in the Mount Summits of Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual oaths on the act. Okay? Now, Jared's the father of Enoch. Mount Hermon is uh, supposedly the highest point in Israel, all right? And understand, Jude re references this in uh, uh, verses 5 and 6. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you uh, once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels who kept not their first place, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved an, an everlasting change under darkness, under the judgment of that great day. And he goes on and talks about how they in like manner to Sodom and Gomorrah lusted after strange flesh and all that. Uh, uh, Peter talks about that as well. All right. Now, these are the names of their leaders. Okay? Samyaza, their leader. Araklaba, Ramil, Kokablel, Tamlel, Ramlel. Donel, Ezekiel, Baraquial, Asael. Let's see. These are hard names, y'all. Armoros, Batarel, Ananel, Zakiel, Samsapil, Satarel, Turel. Yomiel, Sariel. These are their chiefs of tens. So they were organized in bands of tens. These were their chiefs. All of them together went and took wives for themselves, each choosing one for himself. This is the start of chapter 7, by the way. And they began uh, to go into them and to defile themselves with sex with them. Okay? And the angels taught them charms and spells and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And the women became pregnant and they bare large giants whose height was 3,000 L's or some people translate that as cubits. We can get into that debate later. The giants consumed all the work and toil of men and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh. So the giants were cannibals. And drank the blood. Remember, we're not supposed to drink the blood. The blood is the life, right? You're supposed to drain the blood per God's law. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. Okay? Chapter 8. 
Chapter 8 gives us an insight which is very, very interesting. Notice the names that I read out before, okay? I don't know if I want to go through this list again. But uh, Samyaz, uh, you know, Araklabad, Ramiel, blah, 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 blah. You can go back and listen to that. Azazel is not in that list. Chapter 8. And Azazel, wait, who? Where's Azazel? Taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and taught them about metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the, by the way, that, that use of antimony, there's all kinds of uses for antimony. One of them is medical to make, basically to be a laxative. Um, and beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of precious stones and all coloring and dyes. And there was great impiety, and they turned away from God and committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in their ways. Samyaza taught casting of spells and root cuttings. Amaros taught counter spells. Baraquiel taught astrology, and it goes through. Okay? Then chapter 9 is where we get something interesting. Then Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven and saw much blood being shed on the earth and all the lawlessness being done on the earth. And they said to each other, Let the cries from the destruction of the earth ascend to the gates of heaven. And now to you, the holy ones of heaven, the souls of men, make their petition, saying, Bring our cause before the Most High. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, King of kings, and God of the ages, the throne of your glory endures through all generations of the ages, and your name, holy and glorious and blessed to all the ages. You have made all things, and you have, all, have power over all things, and all things are revealed and open in your sight. And you see all things, and nothing can hide itself from you. Look at what Azazel has done. Wait, what? Put on the brakes. Azazel? We were told it was Samyaza. Now watch what happens. Look at what Azazel has done, who hath taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were made and kept in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Samyaza, who taught spells to whom you gave authority to rule over his associates. Wait a minute. We're talking about two different angels here. And they have gone to the daughters of men on the earth and have had sex with the women and they have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And the women have borne giants and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. Now, that's interesting. What we have, what we go to chapter 10, I'll skip forward, go to chapter 10, and God says to Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot and cast him into the darkness and split open the desert, which is in Dudael, and Dudael, excuse me, and cast him in. And fill the hole by covering him with rough and jagged rocks and cover him with darkness and let him live there forever and cover his face that he may not see the light. And on the day of great judgment, he shall be hurled into the fire. And then he gives them orders to go heal the earth which the angels have ruined. 
Okay. But then it says in verse 8, The whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel to him ascribe all sin. Now that's interesting. So who is Azazel? There are multiple views. I'm going to point out that Azazel, one of your knee-jerk reactions is, Azazel is the devil. No. We're told that the devil wanders around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. The devil isn't bound. All right? Chael, Lucifer, if you want to call him that, the, the covering Keruv, is not bound. He's free in the Bible. He's free in the First Testament. He's free in the Second Testament. So this cannot be the devil. Azazel can't be the devil. That's one view that's out there, is that Azazel is the devil. No, he's not. He can't be. Azazel, we're told, is bound. The devil isn't. The devil fell first. So who is Azazel? The tradition is that Azazel was a watcher. And Azazel lusted after a woman or fell in love with her. We're not clear. If you, if you make it a Hollywood movie, he'll have fallen in love with her and it'll be a tragic love story. If, if, you're, if you're asking a Jew uh, that subscribes to this view, no, Azazel took and raped a woman and kept her as a sex slave. So, <laughs> you know, depends on which version you want to go with, right? Um, but Azazel comes in, he is a watcher, he goes in, he takes a woman, and he starts having sex with her, and he starts producing the first giants. But he's off somewhere, he's on his own, he's separated from the rest of society, and he doesn't let his children go rampaging around. That's one of the views, okay? That's one of the views. This is interesting. Because what this seems to point to, this view, is the third fall of the angels is coming up. There's a first fall, which is the covering Karuv and his minions, right? A second fall of the angels is a fall, the fall of Azazel. And Azazel comes down and he does this thing. And in doing this thing, he not only helps to teach men about weapons and all this stuff and teaches people iniquity, he teaches the other watchers about iniquity because they see what he's doing. And Samyaza and his 200 watchers decide they want, they want a little piece of this pie too. They want to do this too. They want to start a natural giant offspring families too, apparently. So that's one of the views, is that there's, th there's the three falls of the angels. The first fall is the covering Karuv. The second fall is the fall of Azazel. The third fall is then the fall of Samyaza and his followers. That's the three pre-flood fall view. The other view is that and I, I don't think there's the, the, the book of Enoch bears this out, is that Azazel is just one of the, the, the 200 angels. That doesn't really bear out because why is, if Samyaza is the leader and tells them, hey, I want to do this, I'm worried y'all aren't going to do this, 
If that's the case, why is Azazel getting the brunt of God's wrath? Azazel had to have done something separately. So that view that Azazel is not you know, something special, he's just one of these 200 angels, I don't think holds water when you look at Enoch. So that leaves us with this view that Azazel did this first. And as an he was an example to Semyaza and the, and the 199 other watchers. So they follow in his footsteps. And it's Samyaza's sin with his 199 followers that winds up tipping the balance and, and just dumping everything into the toilet. Because the thing about Azazel in this tradition is that Azazel at least was over by himself. He was alone. He wasn't doing that much. He was sinning. He was teaching iniquity. But he was off on his own and it wasn't as widespread. But when Samyaza and his people copy Azazel, they multiply the iniquity exponentially. That's the view. So, the other view on this that still ascribes to this view is that this is still one fall. It's the fall of the watchers. So the first fall is the fall of the covering Karuv. Then there's the fall of the watchers. That's not all the watchers. Understand this. There's only 200 of them. There were many, many, many more watchers. The third book of Enoch, if I remember, I think it's the third book of Enoch, talks about the unfallen watchers. Um, there are fallen watchers and there's unfallen watchers. Okay, there are, there are still watchers that watch over humanity. Allegedly. Uh, we don't, you know, we, we, we talk with them. They're talked about in Daniel, right? So apparently there are still watchers that didn't shirk their duty and sin. They st they're still doing their job. So Daniel talks about watchers. So we do know there are watchers that are unfallen and still doing their job. So these fallen watchers, though, were only 200. And so in the second view, there's another view of three falls of angels, and the third fall of the angels is post-flood. And that goes along with a, what they call a second incursion Nephilim view, which we'll get into in just a little while. But there's two views that. One incursion and, 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 and two incursion view. Um, there is a view of um, that I don't think holds a lot of water. We'll talk about that one, about how you get Nephilim after the flood if there wasn't a second incursion. Uh, then there's another view I think does hold water uh, of, of, of just one incursion, but Nephilim returning after the flood uh, in a different way. And then there's uh, a second incursion view. So we'll deal with those here as we, as we get there. But that'll, we'll deal with that when we get to flood and, and, and post-flood. Right now we're talking about pre-flood. So what we have now is we have this setup where we've had Azazel come in. He's been an example, a bad example, to these angels. These angels now come in, and they begin to cohabitate with women, and they create monsters now. These monsters are interesting. They're half angels. And Enoch, at least the Gies version of Enoch, 
Gees, by the way, is the language of, of the Ethiopian language that it was written in. Some people pronounce it Gees. It's G-E apostrophe E-Z. I'm just going to say Gees because uh, Gees makes it sound like I've got hiccups. But, um, but the Gees version is what I've read. And that's really about all it, it, it says regarding that. Um, let me see here. Do, 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 do. Yeah. I was trying to see. Yeah, just want to make sure. Yeah, because that's the, that's the Ethiopian version. I'm going to read you a little bit because I'm fixing to get into Jubilees. And I'm going to read you, though, from the book of Enoch, a Greek version of the book of Enoch. A Byzantine monk named George Sincellus, or Sincellus, actually it be Sincellus back then, in his chronography written around 800 BC, I mean 800 AD, I'm sorry, uh, written around 800 AD, quotes sections of the book of Enoch. And the version of the book of Enoch he had apparently was a, a Greek translation, and it's very different in some ways, from the Gies version of Enoch that we have preserved. All right, so here is the, the Greek fragments of the book of Enoch that were quoted by Sinchelis, okay? And it came to pass when the children of men were multiplied, beautiful daughters were born to them, and the Egregori, that's the watchers, coveted them and went astray after them, and said one to the other, Let us choose ourselves wives from the daughters of men which are on the earth. And Semyaza, their archon, which is leader, said, said unto them, I am fearful that you will not do this thing, and I alone shall be guilty of this great sin. And they answered him and said, Let every one of us swear with an oath, and let us bind one another under a curse that we will not alter this our purpose until we have performed it. Then they all swore together and bound one another under a curse. Now there were two hundred that descended in the days of Jared upon the top of the mountain of, Her of Hermon, or in, in the Greek it's um, Heronim, H-E-R-O-N-I-M. And they called the mountain Hermon for the oath they had taken and the curse they had bound one another with all upon it. These are the names of their archontes or leaders, and it names them. And then it says, These and all the rest in the uh, one, so 1170th year of the world. So this version actually gives, this version of Enoch actually gave a year. Okay, so it's the 1,170th year of the world, took to themselves wives and began to defile themselves with them until the flood. And they bare to them three sorts. Well, that's interesting, three sorts. The first were the great giants. Now the giants begat the Nephilim, and the Eludium were born to the Nephilim. And they increased in their bulk, and they taught one another and one another's wives, witchcrafts and charms. Azazel was the first, but the tenth of the Archontes 
and taught the men to make swords and breastplates, and it goes on. Okay? So this version of the book of Enoch, which is preserved in these quotations and, and translated by Sinkelis, talks about that there were three different forms of giants created by the fallen watchers. There were the great giants, the Naphilim, N-A-P-H-I-L-I-M, and the Eliudim, E-L-I-U-D-I-M. Well, that's interesting. That's more detail than we get in Ethiopic Enoch. Do we find that anywhere else? Is there anywhere else we find this? Well, actually, there is. There is another place that we find this. Let's look in the book of Jubilees. And we look in the book of Jubilees, and we're going to look in chapter 7. And this is, uh, in this chapter, we get uh, an explanation of why, uh, an explanation of why this flood and all came about. For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth, namely, owing to the fornication wherein the watchers against the law of their ordinances went a-whoring after the daughters of men and took themselves wives of all which they chose. And they made the beginning of uncleanness, and they begat the Nephidim, N-A-P-H-I-D-I-M, and they were, and some translate that as all unlike. Most commentators will say they think that's corrupted, that it actually should have been they plundered one another. So some people, some people also translate that as they strove with each other. So some people think that that actually means that they were all unlike, that maybe they all looked very, very different from each other. Uh, that's one point of view. The other point of view is, is that no, they were, that they, they were contentious and they fought with each other. <clears throat> because you finish the sentence and it says, and they begat sons, the Nephidium, and they were, they were all unlike, or they strove with one another. And the next part of the sentence says, and they devoured one another. And the giant slew the Naphil, and the Naphil slew the Elio, and the Elio, or the Elio, mankind, and one man another. So let's dissect that, what, what Jubilees is saying. It says that there's the great giants, or the Nephidim, and they strove with each other, and they devoured one another. That's what it's saying. And that's why I think that, that they were all unlike is, is a corruption. I think it, it meant they, they strove against each other. I think, I think the scholars are correct about that, that that's what the original form would have been. Because then the very next part of the sentence says, and they devoured one another. And the giants, which is the Naphidium, slew the Naphil, N-A-P-H-I-L. And the Naphil slew the Elio. And the Elio, mankind, and man, one another. Huh. Well, that's interesting. So now we have a version of Enoch. All right, we have a version of Enoch that talks about three different races of these pre-flood giants. We have the same tradition here in the book of Jubilees. So what is this tradition? 
I'm going to talk about F1s, F2s, and F3s. What happened is, is there are two views. All right? If you look at that version of the book of Enoch, it says that uh, these and all the rest in the 1170th year of the world took to themselves wives and began to defile themselves with them until the flood and they bear them three sorts and some people put in brackets as their posterity. The first were the great giants. Now the giants begat the Nephilim and the Iliudim were born to the Nephilim. So what we've got in, in this tradition is the first tradition that most people are familiar with is that the Nephilim were born. Period. End of story. That's what you get out of Genesis 6. That these were the Nephilim. The other view, the second view, which comes out of Enoch, which comes out of the Jubilean tradition, is that Nephilim becomes a blanket term for three races. The Nephidium, or great giants, were half angel, half human. And they bred with one another and produced the Naphil. Now in the Greek Enoch, that is Nephilim, not Nephilim, but Nephilim, N-A-P-H-I-L-I-M. In Jubilees, it's Nephidium is the great giants, and Naphil is the next race of giants that were born to the Nephidium. So the Nephidium, or great giants, breed with each other and produce the Naphil or Naphilim. Then the Naphilim apparently breed with each other, and that produces the Eliudim in, from the Greek, or Elio from Jubilees. So different versions of the names. Another way of translating the Eliudim is the Eliud. Some people will say Eliud. So you get the F1 generation is the Nephidium, the great giants. The F2 generation is the Naphil or the Naphilim or Nephilim. Right? It's not, I, I hate to use that Nephilim because it sounds too much like Nephilim. Okay? Nephilim is actually a later blanket term apparently for all three of these groups. And then you get the, get the Eliud or the Eliudim. And what we're told is, is that they're cannibals. The, the F1s are eating each other. They, they war with each other, kill each other, and then eat each other. But they would give birth to the Naphil, and the Naphil apparently were cannibalistic, and so were the Eliod. Then you look at the Jubilean tradition, Again, I'm going to go back to Jubilees. And it says that not only did they slay each other within their own race, or with their own, with their own generation, I should say, but it says that the great giant slew the Naphil, and the Naphil slew the Elio, and the Elio, mankind, and one man another. Uh. So that's interesting. So... 
what you've got then, let's, let's get this straight about how wicked this was. You've got these angel-human hybrids. They're breeding with each other. Apparently there were females. They're breeding with each other, and they're producing the Nathal. And the Nathal breed with each other and produce the Eliot. And then, not only are the great giants, the Nathal and the Eliud, warring against them, their own kind and eating each other, but then they're eating across generations too. They're, the the, the Nathal are killing and eating their children. And so are the Nephidium, the great giants. And so what you've got is this great, great big bloodbath free-for-all that's happening before the flood. And these giants are eating people, and the people are warring on each other. So what you've got is you've got basically four races going on here. You've got the F1s, the F2s, the F3s, and you've got humans. And they're all fighting among themselves and fighting each other. In addition, those that are F1s, F2s, and F3s are eating their own generation, their own kind, and each other. This is what's happening in the days of Noah. Meanwhile, the watchers that started this mess are going to human beings as well as their own children in the tradition and they're teaching sorcery. The tradition also is that these descendants are sorceress. They have powers. These giants have magical abilities. By the way, that tradition is post-flood too. But the post-flood uh, giants don't have as many powers and sorcerous powers as the pre-flood giants. And the pre-flood giants set themselves up in the tradition as lords and gods in a lot of ways. And try to rule over large portions of land. This is all what's happening in the days of Noah. All of this is setting the stage, and by the way, they're blood drinkers, they're vampires, and I don't mean vampires in the literal sense, but they ate, they ate flesh, not only of each other, but when they ate flesh, they didn't drain the blood out of it, or if they did, they drank it. They drank the blood. That is an absolute no-no from God. You're not supposed you're supposed to drain the blood out of the flesh because blood is the life. You don't consume the life. You eat the flesh, you don't consume the life. You don't consume the blood. Blood is rendered sacred by God. And so one of the things that we're told is that they would they would eat people, they would eat each other, but they also didn't drain the blood and they ate the blood or drank the blood. Like little vampires. And that was a sin into it into itself. So, this is what's going on in the days of Noah. You have these giants. And they're killing and eating each other. And they're killing and eating people. And they're killing and eating animals. And we're told in Enoch that you know, people couldn't feed them anymore. And so they started eating people. 
So why couldn't people feed them? Because they set themselves up as rulers over people and their appetites were so great. When they, when people couldn't feed them anymore, they said, okay, you're not going to feed me. I'll just eat you. And they would eat the people. So this, get this in your head, this absolute bedlam iniquity and cannibalism. This is what's going on. People were being eaten like cattle in some cases. This is the days of Noah. And Yeshua said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. This is a frightening thought. So this is what the scriptures and the lore tell us about what happened and who the, the Nephilim were. The Nephilim, before the flood, were in three groups. Now, we don't know. It's, you know people, there's a lot of speculation out there. We don't know if these three groups were somewhat similar. We, we are led to believe that there's something slightly different because we're, talked about, we're told about the great giants and then there are the Naphil and the Eliud. So that F1 generation, that angel-human direct hybrid, appears to have been slightly different. And what they produced, which is not a direct angel-human hybrid, but an indirect angel-human hybrid, an F2 generation, seems in the tradition to have been great and mighty and powerful, but lesser somehow. The F3s were even slightly lesser. Probably because of the way genetics works with crossing over of gametes. You know, you have something that's half and half. You breed brother and sister, which basically is what essentially you can look at this as, and the offspring are not going to be identical to the parents. One offspring may be more like a mother, one may be more like the father. The way crossing over and the mixing of genes works for the formation of gametes, you, you wonder what was going on here. Because the other two generations were mighty, but apparently they weren't as great as the F1s. And when you hybridize things, that sometimes happens. Sometimes the F1s have the great wonderful traits and, and what comes from them if they are fertile because it wouldn't be a true hybrid if they were fertile because again you know hybrids are, are generally considered infertile just once in a great while could you find one that, that would actually um, be fertile but uh, by and large hybrids are sterile but let's say you cross breed two different breeds well then you cross breed those offspring and they may not be as good as the F1 hybrids you see that a lot with um with plants, you create F1, F1 hybrids, and then you save seeds from those. Then you plant the F1 hybrids, they produce seed, and what you get is not as good as what you planted the first time. The F2s aren't as good. We see that in plants a lot. Apparently, that was something that was going on with them. So. <clears throat> That is a, a glimpse into what was happening in the days of Noah. In the next episode, we're going to deal with God's judgment 
against them. We're going to look at the views of the flood, and then we're going to get into how did the Nephilim come back. Because what we're going to see in the judgment is we see that the judgment says that the angels that did this were bound. So if they were bound, how could they do it again? Well, there's some views on that. And we're going to deal with that in the next episode. I hope you'll join me. Until then, I'm Dr. Mick Robison. May the blessings of Yeshua be upon you. May the Lord look upon you with love and mercy and guide you in your way. The Lord bless and keep you. Amen.